Before today's interview, I wanted to ask a small favour, really small one, I promise. I got a message from one of my listeners over the weekend letting me know that they had nominated Climbing Consulting for the Listener's Choice Award at the British Podcast Awards 2018. This award is voted for by podcast listeners like you and goes to the podcast who get the most votes from their listeners before the 12th of May this year. As this listener was kind enough to vote for me and for Climbing Consulting, I decided the least I could do was have a go at this award and see where we can get Climbing Consulting to. And to do this, I need your help. If you've enjoyed any of these podcasts, please could I ask you to take a moment to vote for Climbing Consulting for the Listener's Choice Award at the British Podcast Awards 2018. It's really easy to do, and here's how you do it. Step one, go to your browser, pick your phone up right now or on your desktop if you're at work, and type bit.ly forward slash CIC vote, all in little letters, really important that bit, and that's bit.ly forward slash CIC vote. That will take you to the Listener's Choice Award nomination form on the British Podcast Award website, and that takes you to step two. On that form where it says search for podcast, type Climbing Consulting, and select that as the podcast you want to vote for. At least, I hope you want to vote for Climbing Consulting. Step three, enter your name, enter your email, and hit vote. That's it. Thanks in advance to those of you who have listened to that and are off to vote straight away. Thanks so much to those of you who have already voted. I really appreciate it. It really means a lot to get your feedback. And thanks a lot for helping with this. Please do let me know if you voted for Climbing Consulting, if you've just enjoyed Climbing Consulting, anything and everything, drop me a message. It's nick at climbingconsulting.com. Hi. And welcome to another episode of Climbing Consulting with me, your host, Nick Sinnott. Today's guest is serial entrepreneur Suki Thompson, co-founder and CEO of Oyster Catchers and board member of their parent company, Centaur Media. As well as her corporate roles, Suki is also a trustee for both Torade and Macmillan Cancer Support, as well as a non-executive director for Gately PLC. You may be wondering how Suki is able to fit all of these different roles and activities into her day, and this is just one of the many things we discuss in today's episode. Suki is as impressive as she is open, and she shares so much great advice in this interview, including how she met her business partner, Peter Cowie, how they took oyster catchers from her kitchen table to a thriving business that was acquired by Centaur Media, the challenges that women face in the workplace and how they can overcome them, and her strategy for achieving her goals that helped her get to where she is today. I had so much fun speaking with Suki. It was a great interview, and I'm sure you're going to get a lot out of it. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Suki Thompson. Hi, Suki. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. So... I wanted to start with something I actually saw on your LinkedIn uh, from an article you posted last week, and it, it was some advice that you would give to your younger self. And it was that you wish you'd worried less, you'd slept more, and you'd put tech at the heart of your business that, or all the businesses that you've built. I'm just really interested, what led to, to that piece of advice? Well, the worry bit is, I mean, I don't know if I am typical of lots of women, but certainly if I look at myself and my girlfriends, I think one of the things that we have an ability to do is to worry quite a lot about things. And I certainly do. 
And I think it's that moment of the ability to go from one tiny little thing I'm thinking about into an extraordinary scenario where the world's falling apart in a kind of minute of multiseconds. So I can go from, oh, uh, I, maybe I was a bit short with him in the corridor talking about something that I need him to, to deliver on through to, gosh, my client, I'm going to lose all my clients. The world's going to fall apart. My ch I'm not a very good mom. I'm not a very good wife. Uh, everything's gone wrong. And that kind of ability. So partly happens during the day, always happens, you know, at night time. And again, I think, you know, I blame it on my mother that my mother never slept very well. Mm. And, you know, there's lots around today about how much you should get in terms of sleep and get, you know, at least six, seven hours of, of sleep a night. And I'm quite good at sleeping for a period of time, but I'm fantastically good at waking up in the middle of the night and then worrying about all those things and then waking up in the morning and thinking that was such a waste of time. Why did I do that? We'll come on to the other two then. What have you found to actually help with that? Because I agree, sleep, sleep's a massively important thing. I've said this on another episode, I'm a firm eight hours guy and my wife knows that I get quite irritable if I don't get that. But how have you helped unload that sort of mental pressure from the day so that you, you, know, you can relax more and worry less? Age is a good thing, isn't it? You know, and I think, and we'll come on and talk about this a bit, but the turning point for me was six or seven years ago when I first got cancer. And as part of the process at that time, and then mm. subsequently, I have done two things. One is I meditate. And at the time when I got cancer, it was one of those things that a number of people had told me about. And I thought, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start practicing meditation. It's going to be you know, a good thing to do during my treatment. So I read a book on how to do it. It was at that time when mindfulness was very much kind of coming into its own. What was the book, sorry? It's, it is the book on mindfulness that was started by um, a professor at Cambridge University that introduced it into the company, into the, into the world. I can't remember his name, actually. I should know. Um, we'll, we'll find it. And we can, we'll, we'll find it and, yeah. and let him know because actually I did meet him one time through a friend <laughs> of mine. And I did that you know, terrible thing of going, oh, my gosh, I think you're amazing. You've basically changed my life. And it, and it was. But I did... When I had cancer, I did this thing of learning to meditate. And actually, it was wonderful because I was amazing at it. And having gone from never meditating, I was like, you know, I can meditate for hours. I'm so extraordinary at this. It's really helpful through all my treatment. And then I came to finishing my treatment and came off all the medication that I was on. And I realized, actually, I was completely hopeless. <laughs> I couldn't meditate at all. I just had done so many drugs that I thought I was fantastic. <laughs> But I have spent a lot of time on trying to meditate. Um, I do tend to meditate twice a day. And it is one of those things that when I do wake up in the, in the night now, I consciously meditate. I do often use an app for kind of sleep meditation. So that's really helpful to me. Um, but it has changed my, that has definitely changed my ability mm. to sleep a lot more. And then I think the other thing I've done is just try to switch my brain off from doing it. And there's an amazing woman who teaches you the, the I don't know if you've heard this, the uh, 54321 process. No, what, so, what is that? So what you do is when, uh, one of the things about your brain is you have to trick it into stopping thinking and worrying and moving on. So we are programmed to basically not do stuff that we don't like. So we're, we're very good at socializing or looking at numbers if that's what you like doing. You know, we're always good at doing things we like doing. We're not very good at doing things we don't like doing. So, and then what happens is your brain automatically thinks that it's frightened. So, and you have that kind of fight or flight thing. So when you start worrying about something, your brain panics 
and then your body panics and mm. then it thinks, oh, there's something awful happening, so I'm going to shut down and we better not do this. And so you have to trick your brain into not doing that. And one of the ways you can do it is if you count backwards from five, four, three, two, one, your brain sort of metaphorically breathes and therefore you can stop yourself from worrying. And, you, and it's a really good way of training yourself. So I never get a problem about getting out of bed in the morning, but I know lots of people who do, my daughter included. <laughs> so what they do is to go five, four, three, two, one, get out of bed. Okay. Or, and you can have it with people where you're, you know, when you're worried about saying something to someone, mm. actually, rather than going, oh, maybe if I say that, I'm going to get into trouble, or maybe if I say that, I'm going to upset them, or maybe if I say that, uh, the world's going to end, mm. the best thing to do is to go five, four, three, two, one, and then just say it. Just do it. So don't let your brain run through those permutations, like you say, of what they're going to think, etc. Yeah. I've not heard that before. So it's worth saying throughout this, I love to get recommendations for books and techniques like this for my for my listeners. So I am going to ask for as many as I can get. Okay. Do you recall the name of the... Yeah, I'm going to, if you give me 30 seconds, I can tell you exactly who did that too. I can tell you the lady, the lady, she's amazing. It's, you know, it's one of those kind of American things where, of course, it's very American and all of that. <laughs> but it is, um, you know, it's one of those... I feel the, I do feel the Americans are much better at this stuff though. Us Brits are a bit British about it. And we are a bit. You, sh you should be stiff up a lip and not actually yep. do things like this. I know, I know. We know we never talk about it, do you? It's called the five second rule. Okay. It's by Mel Robbins. So the two the two books that I love in this area is the five second rule by Mel Robbins, and the other one is uh, Have you seen Have you read The Secret by Rhonda Byrne? I have been recommended it, but I haven't read it yet. The Secret's a very good one. Um, again, you know, it's, it's kind of a little bit of a cult following, I think, in, in the States. But it's very much around living the life that you should every day, mm. imagining what you want to be doing with your life and trying to think about going in that direction rather than um, the philosophy of, of I can't, the philosophy of I can. So it's quite a helpful book. One of the things that my family and friends laugh at me at doing, and I do often do this with my teams and, and people that I work with, is that imagination about where you want to be. And I think particularly if you're an entrepreneur, one of the things about being an entrepreneur is you, you're kind of on your own when you're trying to create beginning of your mm. businesses and where you're trying to go. And it's business and life gets kind of in, intrinsically mixed together. Mm. It's very different from if you're in a corporate environment. So one of the things I've done for, for loads of years is on the inside of my wardrobe, I have a kind of map of my life and I divide it into four and I do it with pictures because I'm quite a visual person, so I yeah. like pictures. So I have on the right-hand side a kind of the life that I've got at the moment, mm -hmm. the things that are important to me, the things that define me. Then I have on the left the things that I'd like in the future. And they can be really simple things like I'd like a new pair of Labouton shoes or it could be actually I want to have more time with my girlfriends or my children to be in a job and feeling happy and successful, or a house that I've always imagined. So that's, that's the kind of imaging of that. Then the one on the left-hand side down the bottom is, is entirely about your career. So where you want your career to go to, where, where it's been, kind of imagining where that is. So, you know, as a, if you start a business, what you'd ultimately like to do with it. And it can kind of grow and evolve. And then the one on the right-hand side is the things I want to do additionally in my life. So I've always loved sport. I love the theatre. I, you know, I've been involved in charities and things. So that kind of stuff. So, and it might be a restaurant that I want to go to. So it's almost experience. Is is, yeah. is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I've heard before of people visualising goals, ne never the quadrant, which I really do like. How do you plan what you put in there? Is it serendipitous in that you see, take the shoes, you see them in a magazine, so you stick them on? But for something like career, what do you do to plan what you put on that visualisation board? I don't know if it's got a name that you call it. Do you know, it's one of those things, I, because I'm a girl, I don't know if it's because I'm a girl, maybe boys do it too, uh, I love clothes. Mm -hmm. And so kind of absolutely twice a year, but often a little bit more than that, I change the clothes that are in my dressing room because I can't fit all my clothes in my dressing room. It's not big enough, which it was. And so I sort of have a summer wardrobe and a mm -hmm. winter wardrobe, which is kind of quite typical, isn't it? And yeah. for me, that's a moment in time of the year when you think about, oh, what am I going to do in the next half year? What, what are the things that I want to be thinking about? And I, I tend to do it then. You know, there are, there are times when I cut stuff out of magazines, but I try and sit down and think, these are the things that I want to think about in the next year. And it, typically, we do it at Christmas time, don't we? We go into yeah. a new year, we have New Year's resolutions. I don't try to make New Year's resolutions, but at some stage over that time, I might do it, and then I might do it again halfway through the year. And it's never been about, you know, some people are meticulously good at planning their lives and their careers. Mine's not about that. I'm not very good at doing that. I sort of, things tend to evolve, but I am quite good at saying, what is the next challenge that I want and how am I going to get to live those challenges? And when you sit down, like you say, this sort of half year, you've just done the wardrobe thing. Are there any questions that you do ask yourself at each one of those junctures? Are there any tools that you use or you know, other books you've read that have helped influence how you guide that next six months? Yeah, I mean, I think... It's a lot about how happy am I? Do I feel that I am learning? Do I feel valued and rewarded for what I'm doing? And do I feel I'm living the life that I want to live? And I think for me, you know, seven years ago, I had a, my first cancer diagnosis. Mm. And I think there's a moment in time that actually, if, if you get something like cancer and you think you're going to die, there is, and that's quite, it's quite hard, but... In a, in a way, it's a waste of having had that moment if you never change your life. So for me, I'm really lucky. I've had cancer three times. I'm alive. I'm fine. I'm fit and healthy. I've got two amazing kids and a business and all those things. But it's not enough for me to just live my life and not be happy. Mm. So I am very happy at moments in time over the last seven years where I've thought, you know, what, I'm not enjoying this. But it's okay because I'm learning things or there's some stuff happening that, that means that it's not a, you know, I'm not going around smiling all the time. Of course, I don't expect that. But there is a moment to just do that balance and check. And that's mm. what I do. I really like it. It's um, one of those points I, I've heard others say, and I think implementing it's the challenge. But you, obvi you, know, you obviously do. I, I want to come to the point you, you mentioned around the cancer diagnosis because, and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe you're the first time you actually got cancer, you oyster catchers was one year old, so you were still very young business. You know, I assume a lot going on to an extent, hand to mouth. What impact did that diagnosis have, and how did you and your business partner and your your family manage it to ensure that you could maintain what you were doing and and keep going with all of the challenges you were facing? You know, it, it was a very hard time. Um, I had recently come out of a divorce. I'd started my new business. I'd uh, my previous company I'd worked with with my husband. So he kept Haystack, which, and Haystack was kind of like my third child. I have two children, Jasmine and Sam, and Jasmine and Sam at the time were eight and ten. So pretty young. Yeah. And it was pretty devastating, 
Although, do you know what? Peter Cowie is my business partner, is the most amazing man. And we hadn't worked together for that long. We weren't great mates that we'd known each other for years and years. We kind of knew each other from the industry. And I think what defines a business and certainly a relationship is about how do we behave at those critical moments in time. Mm. Peter was amazing. And he just went, okay, look, this is what's happened. Uh, let's go and talk to all our clients. Let's find a plan. You know, you work in the way that you can, work much more from home. There were, there were only kind of four or five of us in the business. Our clients were amazing. And clients that I'd worked with in the past stepped up and said, look, we'll help you. We will give you work to your other people working in the business at the time. My mum was amazing. She came and stayed with me for quite a lot of the time because I was on my own with my two kids. Mm. My girlfriends were extraordinary, actually, and boyfriends too, but, you know, girlfriends. Mm. And one of the things they did, that, which was lovely at school, because my kids, you know, were, were relatively young, and so they're still in those times when they have classes of hundreds of people, 50 odd people in a, in a year. And uh, one of my friends, Sally, organized this a fantastic thing called a, like, I think it was a, a happy bag. And so lots of the mums and dads from school wrapped up presents, and they put them in these, this massive bag, and they gave them to me. So on a day, if you're having a bit of a shit day, mm. um, or my kids come back from school, Jazz and Sam would say, oh, mum, we feel a bit sad and we're a bit worried about you. We would open one of these presents. And they had all sorts of things in it, you know, right from a kind of, you know, a wooden spoon to do some cooking, to a book, to a magazine, to some chocolates. You know, it was a really, really, really lovely thing to do. You know, and I think that was very special. So, mm. you know, my very close girlfriends, um, one of them went and bought a headscarves with me in fact I didn't end up losing all my hair but you know kind mm. of went through that I had um, several bouts of chemo so different friends came with me during that period of time and and actually there are moments of time through the period of eight cycles of, of chemo that you can't work and you can't function but actually not that many days mm. so you know that was that was kind of good and then I think for me the hardest bit was at the end where you've got lots of people looking after you. I mean, it, it was amazing. You know, the the overwhelming love mm. and support that you that I got from people that I knew very well and people I didn't know so well is amazing. But then what happens is at the end of the treatment, it's kind of nine months later, suddenly I went back into my business. I'm looking after my kids. Everyone's disappeared. I don't see any doctors or specialists. I found that actually more difficult than at any other time. Really? I think I can understand why, but I think that's a really interesting point to elaborate on. One of the things that happens is everyone says to you, gosh, you must be so pleased that you're, you're alive, you're okay, and, you, and you've conquered cancer. And actually, I felt absolutely exhausted. Mm. I looked pretty rubbish. I didn't have that infrastructure around me anymore. And I didn't feel great. And, and there was a bit of me going, I should feel really happy and positive and relieved. And I don't, I just feel knackered. And I'm trying to put on a good show because everyone's so pleased that I'm all right. But I don't really feel like that inside. Mm. And it just, it, you know what, I think it just, and it's now happened to me it, it, in a much less state because I've never had that amount of treatment again since. Um, but it's happened to me each time. And, and I've spoken to lots of other cancer sufferers as well, and they all say the same thing. It does happen. And you're, you know, you're worried about, I was worried about, is it going to come back again? Um, mm. How am I going to cope? How am I going to be able to be back at business? And of course, you know, I went back to work and everyone went, oh, thank God you're back. And then suddenly there's a tsunami of work. And, and I felt tired. And I remember even three months later, Jazz saying to me, mum, you're always tired. Why are you always tired? I just think, yeah, I am. I'm fed up with being tired. I want to feel okay. I want to 
be okay. I want to stop looking like I've just had cancer. I want to look normal and feel okay. And what did you do to to overcome that that part of it? Because obviously, you, it sounds like you had a very good support network during the, your treatment. During that period where you'd come back and you were to an extent on your own, what did you do or how did you overcome that? I decided to do a triathlon. Wow. But I had, I'd sort of begun to do them beforehand. And I decided if I tried to do the Eaton Triathlon again, that would be a good way of me getting back into shape, doing some, some physical exercise. So I think that was a really good thing for me to do. And I just tried to be a bit nice to myself. I think, uh, like many of us, I'd gone through a pretty privileged life, actually. You know, I had an amazing upbringing. I grew up in Cornwall, a lovely business. And, you know, until I got to sort of my late 30s, nothing much had gone wrong in my life. So... You know, I, I, I'd sort of, you know, had fun and worked hard and had some friends, but I never really concentrated on making and telling my friends how important they were to me, mm. spending time with my family properly, being nice to myself. I'd, you know, I'd be out partying or doing sports or looking after my kids. I didn't spend time on myself. So, you know, I did little things like I'd go for a manicure or I would just sit and read a book. And all those things that, you know, when you've got children and you've got a business, none of us make time for, or I mm. certainly didn't make time for. And I just thought, do you know what, I have to do that because otherwise I'm not going to get better and I'm not going to spend time looking after myself. And in my next part of my life, that's really important. So yeah. I think that's what I did. And I think we'll we'll come back to actually how Oyster Catchers was started. And I'm very interested because, like you said, you didn't know Peter that well. I actually, I want to pick up on the point you've mentioned there around that making time for yourself, because the one thing that I see sort of when I read the different roles you have, the different commitments, you're involved in a lot. You're on the board of uh, a number of charities. You're a non-executive uh, for another business. You run Oyster Catchers. You have two children. You make time for yourself. How do you fit all of that in? If I, I'll be honest, I asked us, I asked a couple of your guys if I should ask you any questions. And the, the question I got was, how does she fit 25 hours into 24? <laughs> uh, how do you? I think it's the same as anyone else. If you do stuff you love, it's fine. Mm. It doesn't, of course, mostly, I don't always get it right. And there are some days when I think, God, I'm an amazing mum. I've done a brilliant job with Jazz and Sam and they're fine. And there are other days where I think, oh, that was a pretty useless. And... You know, I think it's the same with everything. Uh, there, it is, an, it is an absolute, I think, it's an absolute, just, it's a lie that people say that they can manage everything and do everything. They can't. Of mm. course they can't. And particularly this sort of superwoman type stuff, I am so far away from that, that I don't even try. I've got a great friend, um, Sasha, who has five children, five girls. Wow. She's an amazing mum, brilliant house. Um, and she always said to me, do you know, 80% is fine. Don't try and get to 80 to 100% and try and do the stuff you're really good at. So, you know, I just, just, I, I love most of the things that I do. Mm. You know, I kind of fit them in. My children get involved in and have been very involved in my business. And I do that stuff that I love. How do you involve them? Because that's another interesting element is balancing the family side with, especially as an entrepreneur, the, the all-consuming side of actually running a business. Do you know, it's really interesting, isn't it? I, and I have, now I'm in a PLC, there are two main things I recognise. One is, 
I've been unbelievably privileged to be able to run businesses through the life of being a mum and and being a businesswoman. Because although there's some challenges about starting businesses, and we'll talk about that, but actually creating a business that's flexible around your life has meant that I very rarely missed significant parts of my children's life. So most of my girlfriends that have come to a very senior level will say, and we all do, of course, um, you have to make a sacrifice, you can't do everything. You can't go to the sports days and you can't be there for holding your children's hand on everything and run a successful business. But I have been able to, as I have grown my business, to be there for the kids for quite a lot of things. And because I, because I organise my day around that, I organise my life around that. If you sit in a business way, now I now have Exco meetings and PLC board meetings. I can't move those around my yeah. kids. I hadn't appreciated that. And I also hadn't appreciated that most people don't really bring their business home. We don't. Mm. You know, of course, Jazz and Sam, I mean, Jazz and Sam are 18 and 20 now. So, you know, they're not so interested. They, they are more interested in my business from one point of view because they are going into the world themselves. But, um, you know, over the time, they've got to know my clients. They've got to know heads of agencies. I started all my businesses at home. Mm. So for the first couple of years, I worked from home and I built my businesses at home. So they've met them. I've always had a, I love many of the people that I've worked with and my clients, and they've become friends. So if Jazz and Sam were here and you asked them about, so last night we had an event where Paul Pomeroy, the chief exec of McDonald's came. So the global chief exec is a guy called Steve Easterbrook. Now actually, Jasmine, my daughter, happened to go to school with his daughter, bizarrely. But she will have a point of view about McDonald's. Both the kids have been to the head mm. office of McDonald's. Jasmine has actually done some work experience there. Sam, when he hasn't been at school, because he wasn't very well a couple of times, has been into McDonald's head office. I mean, I look at it now, I kind of got slightly random. Jill McDonald, who was my initial client there, who's now managing director of M&S, um, they know her, they've met her. I don't know. I didn't really realise that that was kind of unusual. I think it is now quite unusual. I just think that I've been really lucky. And actually, if you talk to Peter Cowie, you know, his children were much older than mine. But you know, it becomes part of your life. So they do know. They know all my business partners. They they will ask me about them. If, if you ask them to describe the various business partners that we've got, the people in my team, they will know them. They'll have a point of view about them. So I think that I've just, they've just grown up with me talking about it. What advice do you give to them about the world of work? Because, you know, what you've just described, they, they sounds like they've been very fortunate. They've met a lot of very senior people. They've, they've had a really good experience and got to know much more than any of their peers. What advice do you give them? Do you caution them that that is not everyone's experience? Do you, what advice do you give them? So I think if you spoke to Jazz particularly, she would say, you know, there were times when she was younger that she just wanted to stay at home mum. She went to a private school and a lot of my girlfriends didn't work. And they work more now, but they definitely didn't when she was mm. young. And so she would be like, you know, mum, I know you're a bit around, but I quite like to be at home. That definitely changed when they went through the period of time of work experience, because I have lots of clients and work experience was a bit easier to, to be able to organize that or to help their friends get work experience with me. Mm. So that's been you know, a lovely thing that I've enjoyed being able to do and they've recognized. And I think they would also now say, and Sam would say, you know, mum, um, and Sam's much shyer than, uh, than Jazz. I, I kind of know how to deal with people because you have encouraged me and enabled me to meet a lot of your business people. And so they're used to doing that. 
So I think that they would recognise that that was quite good. I, I, you know, I think it's jazz is doing clinical psychology. And we, we do have this constant conversation because she said, look, you know, mum, you give me these opportunities to go and work in a variety of different places. And she's worked everywhere from you know, Burberry through to the NHS to McDonald's that we mm. talked about before. And she said, you know what, mum, I do just want to save the planet and I, and I do want to help people. So Brilliant. I know, I know I'm not going to be rich mm. necessarily. And I know I'm not going to be, you know, driven to building businesses necessarily like you and I, and I won't have the lifestyle that perhaps we've grown up with but it has shown me that I'm really driven about what I want to do I think Sam Sam's 18 and he doesn't know what he wants to do at all <laughs> but I think what he has seen which I think is very different from me is and he's he's an 18 year old so mm. they all get that whole entrepreneur thing you know yeah. when I was growing up I didn't even know what an entrepreneur was I don't think they even existed really it's, it is much more popular now I'd say than yes even when I was 18 yeah yeah so Sam will go mum I think I'd like to be an entrepreneur I don't think he really knows what of or how <laughs> or, or anything like that but and I, and I do think they see that and I do think they also see I think what is interesting for them now is they see the world that I had in in my own business mm. and the how do you build it oh they don't fully remember it because it's quite a long time ago that we started Oyster Catchers and they definitely see the difference now I'm in a PLC Mm. And the lack of control by comparison that I have now in my life. And, but it's a different type of stress, isn't it? You know, it's, it's, there's an infrastructure around. You know, you don't have that daily problem of personally feeling responsible for making sure that other people's lives exist and that you are enabling them to have a job uh, and, and all of that at a very, very personal level. Mm. It's very different when you're in a, a much larger business, I think. We've touched on some of them and we'll come on to the, the whole oyster catcher journey, actually why you, why you sold the business. But on that point around the challenges of going from being an entrepreneur into a PLC, I know, and again, we'll touch on, you actually have been an entrepreneur for a long time, numerous business ventures. And I do want to find out about the gin brand you ran, because um, again, my wife loves gin, a lot of friends do really pique my interest. What has been the biggest challenge for you in that move? Is it the time, like you've said, are there any other challenges that you you were surprised about in going from managing director of your own business to a managing director in APLC? Oh, actually, it's, it's not to do with the time at all. It's literally, it's like speaking another language. So I've spent a lot of my you know, latter working life working with marketing departments, with boards of businesses. I've sat in lots of boards of meetings. I'm a non-exec for a, a law firm called Gately. I've been a, a trustee of Macmillan. And, I, you know, I've spent lots of, McDonald's is a big client of mine. I sort of thought I knew from sitting in board meetings as a either a non-exec or from uh, just helping and facilitating those kind of environments, um, what it would be like to be um, in the rhythm of PLC. And I, didn't. And, and I think the thing about Centaur is Centaur is going through a massive transformation. So several years ago, it was a media company. It was all about getting eyeballs. It was all about uh, you know, the printed page. And we've moved I mean, fundamentally from that to uh, now a, a business which is, is all about advising and connecting and informing customers and people and brands and agencies. And therefore, it has gone through its own quite rapid journey. So when I joined even 18 months ago, the way that the business ran is quite different to the way the business runs now. 
But there's just a whole load of stuff I just never did. And I think, you know, as an entrepreneur, you don't, you, you very quickly, you know, you work very closely with your financial guy, with your managing partners, you, you look at making decisions, you balance it on, am I going to invest here or not? Does it feel like a good idea? You do a kind of little bit of analysis and then off you go. That's not how a PLC works at all. Of course, you've got to do proper evidencing. You've got to properly look at the way that you're running your margin. You've got to mm. grow your business in a fundamentally different way. And then you have to just learn a whole load of jargon in a way that a business runs. None of that's because it's a much bigger company anyway. But part of it's just because it, it's, it's just fundamentally different. And so, now for me, I keep talking about it. it's a bit like doing an MBA, but on the job every day. And that has been an extraordinary learning curve for me. I think also I've been a slightly extraordinary learning curve for them too. You know, I am. Um, I hadn't quite realised how my view and uh, the kind of culture that I'd grown oyster catches in, being very customer focused, being very people orientated, and creating a culture which is kind of what you have to do when you're being an entrepreneur doesn't necessarily fit alongside what a. Uh, you know, other businesses do. So I am in the Exco and I, my first thought is always around customers. And then secondly is around people and then around shareholders. And I think, you know, for them, because they've been going through a lot of change, it's been around how do they continue to create shareholder value? And how do you restructure and reorganize an, an organization? How do you make those cost savings? How do you, you know, streamline and, and grow a business and change it fundamentally without dropping the share price? And, and that's a very different conversation to have internally mm. to the one that I'm used to with an oyster catches. Like you say, it sounds, sounds like a learning curve on both sides. And it sounds like it's going well as well, which is really good to hear. I do want to actually then come back to at the start of the oyster catcher journey. I didn't realise, like you said, actually at the time, you and Peter didn't know each other particularly well. How, how did Oyster Catchers start? So my previous company, Haystack, was um, what you would call an intermediary. So sits between clients and agencies and helps clients find agencies. So I was nicknamed Suki Matchmaker for a long time. <laughs> and it was, it was that lovely kind of role, which was, again, sort of 15 years ago, was quite unusual in the marketplace. There were two or three big intermediary companies that were predominantly run actually by men, middle-aged men that helped clients find agencies. And, and when I set up Haystack, I kind of looked at it from a much more consultative approach. Mm. So working with marketing teams to use finding a new agency as part of a transformation. In between Haystack uh, and Oyster Catchers, I just was a consultant for a year on my own. So I was at home most of the time, I had a couple of people working for me, my children were quite young, I wanted to make sure that they were okay after my divorce. Mm. And it was, you know, it was fine, it was, it was interesting, I had some nice clients, but I didn't really like working on my own. And I wanted to start another business. And I'd looked around at doing other things, I, as you said, I'd had a gin company before, I'd always wanted to run a sailing school, so I did that debate of do I go back to Cornwall and run a sailing school? And actually, for me, I love, I love marketing. I love our industry. I think it's extraordinary. And, you know, at that time, 10 years ago, um, was absolutely the time of the dot-com bubble and, uh, and everything was growing. It was very absolutely becoming around digital. And so I thought, well, I'll start a business again. And I, actually, I was at a dinner party. And at this dinner party was Peter. And I was sitting next to him and chatting. And, and I had previously, uh, I'd been 
part of the marketing society. I'd been on the board of the marketing society and um, I'd run one part of the events piece and I'd handed it over to Peter as I went onto the board. So I knew him from there. He was an amazing new business director at WPP. And so when I'd been running pitches for people like British Airways and Sainsbury's, he had been the new business director on the other side. Mm -hmm. And we knew lots of people and we'd been in the industry a long time. And I'd talked to him when I was at Haystack actually about whether he ever wanted to come and work with us, but it never came to anything. So at this dinner party, we got chatting and, and he was going to do something in this space. And I went, well, come and work with me. And it went from there. So, you know, he, he's massively enthusiastic about everything. They used to call him Top Banana at WPP. And, you know, I was quite clear and I just said, look, I absolutely know what the business should look like. I think we should be engaging in digital space. I think it should be a business that's more around helping marketing departments function and be amazing and how we work with their clients and agencies. Um, so I sort of know what to do. And I think we should build a consultancy, not just an intermediary. But I think you'll be brilliant at having a different perspective on how we run pitches and you can learn and help grow it that way. So I, I sort of knew where the business might go and how to do it. And Peter bought his, you know, loads and loads of years of experience of the whole industry, you know, and creating a, a kind of even more encompassing pitch process. And I just think we just found out that we just liked each other. You know, we got on really well. We are really, really different. I mean, he is, mm. he is uh, slightly eccentric. There's a lovely expression that one of our clients, Kat, at TK Maxx talks about is, you know, get the fish out on the table. Okay. And getting the fish out on the table means say all the stuff in the room, like the elephant in the room, say mm -hmm. all the stuff that other people are thinking and don't say. Mm. Peter always says the stuff. That other people don't say. He always brings the fish. He always brings the fish. And, you know, he loves people. So his, when he thinks, his idea of success mm. is every client hugs him and says, you're amazing. You know, he has, he has ability to hug people, to kiss people far too much for my liking. Um, and, men as, and men and women. And, you know, that's slightly off-putting. But that's what Peter's like. So, you know, when we, when we first got together to working together and we were chatting and I said, you know, we were looking at the clients we might work with. And I said, well, you know, I know Nigel Gilbert at, um, at that time, the CMO of Lloyd's Banking Group. And he went, oh, I know Nigel. I said, oh, that's good. So we phoned Nigel and went to see him and Nigel gave us one of our first projects. So Peter drives a massive motorbike. And I said, oh, Nigel's just said we've got our first project. It's amazing. He goes, excellent. I'm going to get on my bike and go and see him. So he literally jumps on his motorbike. He goes across town. He walks into Lloyd's Bank. He walks into Nigel's office, gives him a massive hug and kiss, literally a hug and kiss, and then walks back to the office and goes, darling, I love you, and comes back. I'm going, Peter, that's just outrageous. How are you doing that? And how do you get away with it? But you know what? Ten years later, that's still what he does with all clients. And even the clients at the beginning kind of go, well, I'm not sure about Peter. He's quite full on. By the end, love him because he passionately loves their business and loves people and working with them. And he's amazingly good at it. So it's been great. And I'm really interested in that, that start point. Finding a business partner can be can be a challenge. Um, many businesses fall apart because partnerships don't work how did you decide and how did Peter decide that you know you were a good partnership do you remember any of the conversations you had any of the thought processes you went through to, to decide that because I think for others who are looking to start a business I think that's a really interesting point especially 
given what, what you say about how different you are? Do you know what? I think we're really lucky. I don't think we did any of the properly, oh my God, what happens if it doesn't work, if we don't get on? I just think we just thought, look, we kind of like each other. It might work, it might not. And actually, you know, I then bought in Angus Crowther as my second managing, the sort of the third managing partner. A little bit later, we had Richard Robinson and the four of us were the managing partners when we sold the business. So I think we were really, really lucky. We had then a couple of other managing partners we tried to bring in along the journey and they didn't work out. So I think the thing is, when it doesn't work, you know. I think we've always been too slow to get rid of them. Mm. Actually, in every single instance, we've been slow to, too slow to get rid of them. Why? Because they don't fit. And it's not their fault. It's not they're not good. It's just don't culturally fit. And I think as you grow bigger, there's, there's a tipping point, isn't there? There's, as you grow, the employing the next senior person is disproportionately important and therefore if it doesn't work makes a massive impact on the whole business mm. as you then get to a critical size sort of doesn't matter quite so much i mean it does obviously at that very senior managing partner level but you can bring people in and they don't all necessarily fit mm. and you can accommodate that but it, it, it's much more difficult i think as you build a business what stopped you Guess you, you said you, you got rid of them too late. What stopped you getting rid of them at, with hindsight? What was the right time? Because they were always nice people. You know, they were nice. They, were, they weren't trying to be hopeless or <laughs> trying to not work with us well. Um, and sometimes it was us. You know, Sometimes they came in at a time when we were trying to grow and do something different. You know, we, we're kind of the sort of slightly classic entrepreneur where we do stuff a bit too much by gut and instinct rather than having lots of processes. We've never been massively process-driven, uh, and therefore we've been quite agile and customer-focused. You know, that's quite frustrating, I think, for other people to come and join. But, you, you know, I've seen that in lots of businesses, uh, much bigger businesses than we've had. It's a kind of slightly entrepreneurial trait, isn't it? You just go and get stuff done and then worry about it later rather than putting it as much systems and, and processes as you should, probably. And was, was it that gut feeling that led to you actually creating the consultancy business? Because like you said, you, you ran the agency matchmaking business. And it, it seems to me that actually that marketing consultative approach was quite new when you were setting it up. Is it just you felt it was right? Or how did you decide that that was the right business to, to go after? There's a couple of things. One has been, I actually wanted to passionately bring in training. Training and capability was the thing that I really wanted to bring alongside pitch and, and partnership stuff. So I think training is really important to all businesses. I think it's really important to people and individuals. And I think as an industry, we have often shied away from training our people brilliantly. So, you know, if you are a lawyer or a financial person, you sit in a, a, a kind of formulaic process mm. that just because you've come out of university or whatever, you carry on learning, you carry on doing professional study and sitting exams we don't do that in marketing I mean you could mm. leave school and never do marketing anything at any time and still be really successful and I'm not sure that that's always a right a good thing I don't think it's always a good thing for our profession so I really was really interested in training so there was that and then as you look at clients and agencies and how they can perform together and then you look at how do you optimize that relationship and you put in training there's another piece that says but how does the model work so how do we make the whole thing fit together? And therefore, the consultancy piece became intrinsically more important. And we were looking increasing as how do you evolve ways of working? The other thing is our clients. You know, so I talked a little bit about McDonald's. McDonald's has been a, a core client of ours for a long time. Um, Sainsbury's has as well. 
BT. There's, there's a number of key clients and individuals that have said to us, we need some help. So could you help us in evolving this? So, you know, the reason we put together our training and it really accelerated was market, was McDonald's wanted some training, so we evolved it and created it. And then Sainsbury's said that we've got an opportunity to build an academy for them. So they enabled us to pitch for that and we got it right. And we said, look, this, you're our first client to do this with. And they went, that's okay, we'll we'll trust you. We've We've worked with you for some time. We trust you to evolve and we'll grow it together. So I think clients have enabled us to do that. But then I think in the last couple of years, two or three years, as we have been growing oyster catchers, the market has changed so fundamentally. And as the big consultancies have become more focused on the understanding and helping businesses change as much Mm. as they've needed to, it's been more important that marketing has worked more effectively. And the complexity around how do you really get marketing to change, I think it's meant there's been an opportunity for us to be able to create a, a consultancy that fits. What you just said reminds me of, uh, I think it's a Richard Branson quote, so if it's not, apologies, but the, the say yes and figure it out how to do it later, is that feels like that's sort of a, for the early days at least, something that was a bit of an oyster catcher philosophy that helped you grow as well. Yeah, and I think it's the same. I've, spoke, I've spoken to so many entrepreneurs. I mean, I think it's, a, it's absolutely in our DNA of culture around, I don't think, I think what we don't do is to say, blag and mm. go, yeah, of course we can do that and lie. Because actually that's very dangerous. Mm. What I think we've always tried to do is to say, look, we can definitely do this. We're really brilliant at that, but this is where we're trying to evolve and grow to. And on the whole, I think our clients have been amazing. They've enabled us to grow in those directions and to be able to go on that journey. And we haven't always got it right, but that that has helped us grow and and become who we are. Mm. Having a can-do attitude and trying every which way to deliver for our clients is a slightly different thing, but I think that is what we have tried to do. How did you grow the business from a strategic level? Was it primarily client-driven demand that success bred success? Was there, I know you said you don't like planning, but was there a plan? How did you grow the business and get to the point which 18 months ago you you ended up selling it? I I do like plans. Okay. So it's not that I don't like planning. We've Mm. always had a business plan. We've always had a business plan from the beginning. What I don't do is endless documents. Mm. Slight difference. Yeah. Thank you for correcting me on that. All right. Five years ago. Six years ago, I ran the business. Peter and I ran the business at the beginning as a lifestyle business. Definitely, I, you know, partly because I'd had cancer as well. Mm. I mean, we definitely would have grown quicker if I probably hadn't. I wanted to be a good mum. I wanted to be healthy, and I wanted to have a business that we were really proud of. So we grew it like a lifestyle business, and then I could see that actually my children were going to leave home. So Jasmine was going to, you know. She's 20 now and Sam's 18. So Peter's children had left home anyway. He's 10 years older than me. And so we went into a five-year plan. We brought in a non-exec from LEK, so Jeff Parkin. And the first couple of years around, okay, how do we structure this? How do we grow? How do we bring in the consultancy part of what we wanted to do? The reason I asked Jeff to be our non-exec was because I was really clear I wanted to be able to build a consultancy. And he he's the managing director of LEK, so knows how to build a consultancy. So it was really helpful for us. As we went into our fourth year of the five-year plan, and at the end of the five-year plan was going to be a tipping point. Sell, 
take some more money and grow, but definitely grow. And I, I, in my head, I had said, look, I don't mind having a small business that's, that's nice and cuddly and lovely, but it's not what I want to do forever. I don't want to run just a tiny boutique consultancy. I want to have something that's global. We opened an office in Hong Kong. We had a good partnership in the States. I wanted it to grow. I think it's a very dangerous place to be. You're either, you either stay small forever or you grow properly large. Sitting in the middle is very dangerous. You know, and in my plan at the beginning of our fourth year, my fifth column that said, you know, the things that I was going to do as, as the chief executive of Voice to Catchers was look at the options to get finance or sell. And by the end of the January, I'd had three companies that had approached us and we'd looked at some finance options. So we were a year early and, you know, a number of things happened. I'd had cancer again, which was in my foot. So I'd had um, my, I'm, I'm BRCA positive, so I now know um, that I have a cancer gene. So I'm one of the weird things, and they don't think it's related, but it feels slightly weird, that if you've had breast cancer, sometimes you can get melanomas. But, and I do, and my skin seems to slightly mutate in a bizarre way. So what they thought was a wart was actually a melanoma on my foot. So I had, had quite a big bit of my foot removed. And then I, I think that made me think, okay, it's important that we do something with the business and really concentrate on this. And so we looked around and the two companies that we'd looked at was an American business that we'd looked at and we looked at Centaur. And I knew Andrea, the chief exec, I was really attracted to the thought of having, if I was going to have a boss after nearly 20 years, a female boss would be quite nice. I also felt that the American company, and we looked at them, being based in the States would be quite challenging for me. Sam was still living at home. I didn't think I could honestly travel every couple of weeks to the States. I didn't think I'd be able to do that very well. I didn't think it would make me very happy or good at my job. And I was very interested, particularly in the training part of Central. So I think that enabled us to say, look, it's kind of a year early, but this is the right time to do this. So that, that's that sort of journey. That's how we got to where we were. How did that plan come about? Was that you and Peter? That, did you take a week together and write that out? Is this what you took to, metaphorically took to the dinner party and told Peter about? How did, how did you develop that plan? Because again, I think it's really interesting for people who, who are looking either to go from, say, a lifestyle business and to big business or just at the start of the journey and want some of that structure? We purposefully chose to have a non-exec. I think Peter and I were very much the founders of the business. Mm. The first step we took was for me to take a sort of chief, chief exec role, which still meant that Peter and I made joint decisions about a lot of things, but you can't, not everyone can be equal all the time. And so in the kind of direction of where the business was going, and Peter and I have different stages of our lives. So Peter had said, look, I'm, I am keen to begin to think about what I'm going to be doing after work, not to stop, but actually change my life a little bit. And I'm, I'm like, do you know what? I'm absolutely up for my next adventure. You know, I'm, I'm up for another 10 years of working and doing some things because that's what I want to do and I want to learn and do some new things. So I think we both, we both worked out what we wanted to do with our lives. And so we talked about that. The first part of that was getting a non-exec. And that gave us much more discipline, much more rigor, and an external person and an external perspective. And Jeff was brilliant at that. And I think, I think that my advice to everyone is as soon as you can, get somebody who is senior that has comparable but different skills to you to help you grow. 
I think the three things that I would always put into a business are uh, that kind of non-execs, really, really important, have really brilliant financial help and support. So we, we had a guy called Yasser Khan, who I'd known for a long, a long time, actually, and I had worked with. We brought him in as our part-time financial director, very close to the beginning of our business. So, so financial help in terms of someone to analyze finances for you. Uh, yeah. Yeah, to help build a business so you don't go bankrupt. Most of my friends, you know, the problem with most businesses is they do go bankrupt. Mm. And there's always moments in time when I've had to put my hand in my pocket and bankroll the business for a few months because the cash flow hasn't worked. Mm. Particularly as you grow and you know businesses take so long to be able to set up their systems for you and it's one of the classic problems of of any business. So I think Yasser was was brilliant for us. And I think then the other one is actually is HR, because HR is much more complex now than it ever used to be. So certainly when we started, we didn't have much of an HR function. Mm. I would definitely put that in much sooner now because it causes all sorts of problems if you don't. Yeah, so I, I think that was the most important thing. Once we had then decided when we brought in our other two managing partners, it it did become a process that I ran. Um, we did collectively decide to not take financial support and go into selling the business. And we had made a decision that we would sell the whole business and we wouldn't do um, any sort of JV. So we had that, made that decision. But, you know, Peter and I were the, are the majority shareholders in the business. So actually, Richard and Angus, whilst we wanted them to be part of the journey, they have a minority input. Mm. Uh, you know, that's it. at the end of the day, they're only minority stakeholders. So it was Peter and I's decision on, on what we actually did. And, and the way that we did it is because it's very time consuming, is that I ran all the negotiations with the two or three companies we were talking to. I worked very carefully and closely with Jeff and Peter carried on running business on a day to day, as did the other two managing partners. We didn't tell anyone else in the business at all, um, not actually until literally the day before we were going to sell. And we got a couple of other people in the business involved, obviously my PA, financial, and we brought in one of the other um, people in the team, but we didn't tell anyone else at all because we didn't know it was definitely going to happen. And again, mm. I've spoken to lots of people who say, you know, at the eleventh hour, often you don't sell the business, and then the people feel, you know, anxious and they don't really know what's going on. Your clients get spooked by it, um, and it's difficult to manage. You know, I, I can imagine if you go through the whole process, it takes six, seven months, and then you don't actually sell. It's quite difficult to yourself build yourself up, let alone mm. everyone else. I want to come back to Jeff, but I, the point you've just made around keeping it to a small group to avoid that 11th hour sale falling through, obviously the converse that reads is you announce this to everyone and it's a huge change. How did did you as the CEO actually manage that to to make sure your team were was comfortable with it as possible and comfortable with the decision made? The one thing we had shared with them was the vision for the business. So the vision for the business is always to grow, to become more international, to grow our training side of the business. And we had said that we were on a five-year plan. We hadn't said that we're definitely going to sell at the end of that five-year, but they all knew that we were on a five-year plan. So they knew there was a, yeah. an, an end point, if you like. They just didn't, yeah. didn't know what was there. No. So we'd been very, very clear about that. Mm. And I think they'd all seen that we were quite ambitious, that we were growing, that we were building up our team uh, at the kind of managing partner level and the senior team. We were putting in more process. So, you know, I, and I think it would have been wrong to our people to sell a vision and then not deliver on that vision. So 
the point you've made around the non-exec, I think, uh, is a really interesting one. And particularly, you highlight how you, it sounds like you identified Jeff and then you went and got him to the point where he's happy to join you as a non-exec. How did you do that? Because it, it's obviously been a core part of your journey, but how did you identify and then actually persuade him that he should get involved with yourselves, which at the time would have been a much smaller business, I imagine mildly competitive. Um, I don't know if I don't know if you agree. I don't think he thinks so at all, but I'd like to think so. <laughs> um, but yeah, how, how how did you do that, and how how sh- how could others do that if they they were looking for that support? So actually, the way I found Jeff was uh, I talked before about McDonald's. Mm. McDonald's. Jill McDonald was the chief exec of McDonald's. And I had become a friend of hers, mm. you know, through working together. I first met her when she was at British Airways and then she went to McDonald's and I was at a dinner party at her house and I met Jeff. Jeff worked with her originally at British Airways before he was at, actually with her husband, but with both of them and, and then ended up at L.E.K. So I'd met him then. I met him again, I think probably at another dinner party at her house and then sort of in the industry. At that time, what I had done is I had met three or four people that do that sort of non-exec role maybe on a a full-time basis actually they kind of go into businesses they help them grow and then they either sell them so I'd met several people like that mostly from the agency environment I'd met people who'd been heads of agencies that had talked to me about what they might might not be able to do for me what I had felt was I didn't want somebody from from the industry from an agency side and I had looked at a couple of clients so that they'd had that perspective. But again, they weren't really able to offer me the piece that I felt that we were lacking in was one, which was how to grow as a consultancy and also have experience of either selling a business or or finding a way to finance a business. And I think it was just fortuitous that Jeff did. And again, Jeff is very different from me. So, you know, if Peter's on one extreme and I'm in the middle, Jeff is is absolutely what you would imagine of a very successful management consultant, very considered, brain the size of a planet, unbelievably nice and smart. But also one of my most important clients really liked him and rated him. So I felt that if Jill said to me, and of course I asked her and I asked a couple of other people, you know, do you think that what you know of Jeff would one fit into our culture as a non-exec and would help me be able to build the business? And that's really helpful for me. Mm. So I think that he was he was just exactly the right kind of person that, that was right. And again, I think it's that combination, isn't it? Find somebody who you're going to like, because you're going to have to work with them quite closely. Don't find necessarily people with exactly the same skills as you because that's not very helpful either, I don't think. Mm. But also find somebody to help you go to where you want to be in the future, not to where you are now. And for people who are listening to this and think, I actually want to start my own consulting business. And you know, I'm thinking to your, your son, Sam, here, who said, I want to be an entrepreneur. So you can take both angles to this. What should people be thinking about before looking to set up a business, both in terms of, well, I won't go any further, actually, I'll leave it there. What, what should people be thinking about if they do want to be an entrepreneur? I think the most important thing is to really understand a business or an industry so you can disrupt it. And I do see and I meet and I mentor a, a number of amazingly brilliant, I mean, far, far more brilliant people than I am, who have gone to university, come up with an amazing idea and then started a business. There's loads of them. The downside of that is that most of them haven't actually sat in an industry and haven't sat in a real job 
and therefore don't know how a proper business runs. So they get to a certain size and they've got a really lovely idea and they might have had millions of pounds invested in it, but actually the fundamentals of running a business, they don't know how to do it. Whereas I think that, you know, for me, I, I started in advertising. I also was a headhunter for a short amount of time in Asia. I absolutely knew, because I was a new business director in an agency for a number of years, about the whole pitch process. I knew how to do it pretty brilliantly, I think-ish, from a being a new business director side. I knew what it was like being a client. I'd been a marketing director for, for a short period of time. So I understood how that whole pitch process worked, how that industry worked. And I just didn't think it was very good. I thought it was, you know, just a bit haphazard. And... I thought I could do it in a different and better way. But I'd also seen the infrastructure of running a business. So, you know, even though when we talked about earlier on, it's quite a shock to be in a PLC, I have been in large businesses before. And that, you know, that's quite a good place to be because I'm, you know, albeit it's kind of evolved and different, I do know where I'm trying to go to. And I've made decisions about the kind of lifestyle or the business that I want to run in order to get to that place. So I, I think for me, that has been a really vital part of the way that I've built my businesses. And I think that, that advice, especially around sticking an industry you know, I think, like you say, the, there's a lot of people who start businesses, some successful, some not in complete tangents. And that, that brings that sort of beginner's mindset does bring some advantages. But equally, the, the point you make around get that experience in an industry so is that the is that what you say to Sam go and find a find an industry and le learn your craft first yeah I mean I just think I actually what I tried to do with him is um <laughs> all my entrepreneurial friends are so lovely and spend time with Sam mm. so he's done quite a lot of work experience and he'll do some more but for him I think it's about go and meet these entrepreneurs and understand what it is that makes a brilliant entrepreneur. Uh, so there's a guy called Dan Gilbert at Brain Labs who mm. I think is extraordinary and, um, and Sam spent a, bit, a little bit of time with him, a brilliant, one of the top, fastest um, times growing companies. There's another guy, um, Ben, who runs Bow and Arrow, which is an innovation company. Ben is a classic entrepreneur. He's been very generous with his time for Sam and Sam's worked there a couple of times and it's going to go and work there again. And what that enables him to do is to see what it's like working in an entrepreneurial environment, um, find somebody he can look up to that can kind of mentor him, but also then understand how that bit of business works. I don't know what Sam will want to end up doing. I don't really even understand which industry he wants to be in. Mm. But I think what he will do is see the drive and the depth of what those entrepreneurs are like. And then equally, you know, he has worked with, he went to a friend of mine, Steve Parrish, runs Crystal Palace Football Club. Steve is an extraordinary entrepreneur, sold tag for a lot of money and then became chairman of Crystal Palace. Now, Sam went and did some work experience for him. Uh, Sam just said, you know, mum, fascinatingly loves Steve. He's amazing. He said, but you know, what? I'm just not interested in football. I just, you know, they're amazing, but it's not for me. Mm. So I think that's as equally good and important to understand at particular age. How do you know? How do you mm. know when you're 18? And I think, you know, I just, I went to drama school. I wanted to be on TV. So I just kind of ended up in advertising because I was waiting around to try and get into the BBC and ended up in advertising. So I never planned my career at all. So I think the fact that they even think about it is an awful lot better than I ever was. On that point, obviously you knew the market in terms of the marketing side, the ad agency side. Consulting was a relatively new piece to you. What 
challenges or things did you have to learn very quickly when you when you moved into that side of the world that maybe were different when you were on the matchmaking side? Do you know the first bit and the biggest challenge I've had the whole time through is finding the right people. So at the beginning, we used a number of people who were actually at the, at the beginning, we seconded some people from LEK and Deloitte's into working with us. Okay. So we went to them and said, we've got this big project. Could you come and help us do it? So that was really helpful. And we, we did look at, and we had a, a guy um, who used to work at AT Carney. So he helped me kind of evolve the consultancy piece. Um, but we couldn't afford him to have him full time. So that was a bit of a shame. But um, what we did that, and, and what the problem that I found was the consultants that were coming out of those places did a number of things that didn't really fit. One was they only work with one client at one time. And we don't have that model. We have a model where we work with multiple clients simultaneously. They also had a level of strategic input that was really helpful, but at that kind of very, very high level. And what I recognized was, was that what we really should do is get our hands dirty and go in and help clients change. And that's what we wanted to do. So if you know, if you come from an agency background or a client background, you tend to get your hands dirty, go and make things happen and make that change happen and evolve. And so um, what I've been, what I was looking for was how do we meld these together? What kind of different talent do we need to bring together to create a consultancy that that would be able to meet our clients' needs. And so that's the sort of model that we've got. And, and you know, we've had ex-management consultants. We've got people with kind of psychology backgrounds. We've got people with brand backgrounds. We've got people with planning, planning backgrounds. And if you pull all those people together, I think you've then got to train them and evolve them to be able to meet the clients that we work with, rather than necessarily having somebody that can come straight into the business and do it in exactly the way that we do it now. No, it's, a, it's a really interesting point around the, that difference between the strategy and delivery side as well. And I think there is in the consulting industry some people who focus very much on one at the expense of the other. And obviously, business is built entirely around that. The marketing side, actually, I'm, I'm quite interested for, I don't know if you have any consulting clients, but it is quite a competitive industry. A number of my guests have started new consultancies in the last three, five, six years. What should people who are running consultancies or looking to set them up or even working in them actually be thinking about from a marketing perspective? You know, what, what do you see others or your, how do you market yourselves in a way that draws clients that others can learn from? We've always had a strategy that's been around really focusing on individuals rather than brands. So we tend to follow a network and pull clients in towards oyster catchers through either having worked with them in, in places over the years and then follow them around and then, you know, make them like us so that they want to work with us again. So, you know, I've talked a little bit about that in, in this interview. And we very much had a kind of networking, managing partners. The way that they need to work is to look after their existing clients and then grow new relationships, establish them, that kind of, you know, farmer attitude mm. of, of doing that. And we've very much grown like that. We've never done an, a huge amount of cold selling for oyster catchers. We, we haven't really grown in the way to be able to do that. We haven't really done that before. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're much more focused a, bit, a little bit on that now because we've got that kind of bigger impetus and a, and a broader reach now through the PLC. So it is, it's sort of evolving in a way now. But we, we always used to do that. 
we have an oyster catchers club. So we mm. created this oyster catchers club that did a number of things for us. One, it um, primarily was there for help us understand what's happening in the marketplace and give us a vision. So we talk about inspiring curious minds, but also leading the industry forward. So I get an amazing opportunity and we as, you know, as always to get an amazing opportunity to talk to chief execs, CMOs, CTOs, other people that have got an interest in the industry and understand where they're going. So that's really helped us be able to communicate with lots of people. We can invite new clients. We can invite agencies to come along. So that's a really good place for us to be able to talk to potential clients mm. and tell them and show them what we do, but also for us to learn ourselves. So, I, you know, I think that, of course, the things like websites and mm. social media, I, th I think we're better at that now than we used to be. Again, understanding what your vision is and then marketing that is a good thing to do. And I, I think we have, I think partly because I probably, both Peter and I, started off in that sort of new business role, that marketing of agency roles. We've always marketed oyster catchers relatively well. We've stood for something in the marketplace. And, and I do think that's important for consultancies. You know, it's very easy to just look internally or just do, let's talk to the clients and just grow our individual clients. But I think if you don't look externally and trying to build that, you're not going to really grow, are you? And I think the, the oyster catchers, um, the oyster club, catchers club that you mentioned, one thing there that I'd be fascinated is actually how you grew that because it, it's very well regarded in the industry. You get fantastic guests along like you said you had um the uk managing director of mcdonald's the one yesterday what i do know though is that in the industry for say consulting firms consultants will run these events and they're very often viewed by clients as pseudo sales events you know come to my come here my thought leadership and then i'll give you a business card at the end of the day but you've obviously managed to build a marketing event that has that fringe benefit for you while providing something to the industry how did you go about doing that so that it had that appeal to clients and wasn't seen as just a, a plug for oyster catchers? I do, the origin of it was clients, because we'd run this pitching, we'd been this sort of intermediary, we see amazing agencies, amazing mm -hmm. agencies. So clients would be saying, look, I've got my, I've got my core group of agencies around me. And it, it's been running for f sort of five years ago. But what, what are the interesting agencies? Wh who's doing stuff in social media? Who's doing stuff in digital or tech? And so we used to get clients and take them around to see a number of agencies. So we would do these sort of inspire your curious mind days mm. of taking clients around to see agencies. But it's really, really time consuming. <laughs> it was really <laughs> annoying, actually. And then we thought, do you know what? Why don't we just put them all together in the same room? And a number of clients said... Look, if you could get some agencies together, you know, we'd come along. Why don't you do that? And actually, Peter and I very rarely fall out about anything, to be honest. But we've had two or three times where we've not agreed. And one of the things, as I said, look, well, we've got to afford to do it. You can't just, you know, suddenly miraculously put together a club. Let's see if agencies want to become members and we'll charge them. And Peter went, no, we can't do that. It doesn't work for our model. It's not the way we, you know, the way that we run pitches is anyone can be on our pitch list. We, we do not only put agencies on a list that we take money from. And, and it was a very different model to what I'd run at Haystack. And I was very keen that that was not the way that mm. we were going to run Oyster Catchers. And I said, yeah, but maybe it would help. Maybe it's a good way of us getting these conversations to happen. And, and actually clients and agencies will be able to spend time together. And we did. We started with 20 people in our boardroom five years ago. And it just took off. It was extraordinary. You know, one of those things that we, we found up a few agencies that said, do you want to come along? And 
of course, there's always those first people who are hugely supportive to us and we've helped them because we've mm. they've won pitches through us. And so it grew relatively quickly over about kind of a couple of years and we went from 20 people to, you know, sort of 100 people. And then we thought, you know what, we should absolutely make this work um, better because we can really talk about some, some debates and some things in the industry. And actually the turning point for me was three years ago, three and a half years ago, when we looked at diversity. And Richard Robinson and I, one of my managing partners, um, we talked quite a lot about diversity. I think, you know, again, there aren't that many female entrepreneurs, uh, not enough. There's not enough senior leaders in our industry, even though there's, you know, lots of women that work in our industry. Uh, you know, if you look at media companies, there's still only a handful of chief execs that are women. And I looked at all the stats for doing a diversity event, and I was so appalled about our industry that I thought, you know what, I think we can make a difference. I don't just want a club that lots of people come along to and we inspire curious minds. That's a very nice thing to do. But what can we actually do to change the industry and, and highlight this? Because I think we're in a really unique place between clients and agencies. And that is the springboard. And we got one of the founders of the Women's Equality Party to come along. She was one of the speakers. And we have Paul Geddes um, from Direct Line, Chief Exec. And, and we talked about it. And I said to the agencies, look, if any of you would like to come and help the Women's Equality Party, it feels like a thing that we should try and help them. And literally 20 or 30 agencies wrote me a note and said, yeah, we'll come along. And I said, well, let's do a breakfast on Friday. And they came along and they, and they purposely made a difference. And they created some ads and they, and they gave some media and, and they really helped Sophie Walker and the, the Women's Equality Party. And I thought, you know what, that is, that is making a difference. And then, you know, there would be a number of topics. So people would talk about, well, actually, we're really interested in leadership. Leadership's really important to us. Or uh, we've done some stuff about mental well-being, mm. which, again, is very important, I think. And so we've now tried to evolve the club into being a combination of some big industry themes that we think we can sit in the middle of the industry and not just us, you know, of course there are other, other trade bodies and things like the marketing society are doing great things in the industry too, but we can actually change people's point of view and people can come on that journey with us. And then also look at some of the difficult, gnarly things in the industry that, that, that are just tough. So, you know, last night we were talking about how you can evolve partnerships. But I think, you know, we're at a very challenging time in the industry. I think there's been a lot of self-flagellation. You know, there are genuine issues around transparency and, you know, a, a lot of this area where we've had to look very introspectively at the industry. I think we've had to say, Do you know what, we fucked up and we need to be better. But also, I think one of the ways to be better is to talk about the, the brilliant good things that we've done as well. So you know, last night we, we did have Paul Pomeroy, Chief Executive McDonald's. We had um, Louise Fowler from the post office and we had Kat from TK Maxx talking about the brilliant things that they're doing and sharing some of the stuff that they haven't done so well, but talking about how those relationships are really good. And we did have Claire from, from Publicis talking about how one publicist is going to grow. We've had, we had Lindsay from WPP last month talking about how WPP is transforming and what horizontality means. So... We are trying to give a forum where we can have some of those really difficult conversations. And I think, and I genuinely, and I'm really passionate about, that is the purpose of the club. It is not a purpose for us to sell and say how amazing we are. I think that, of course, there's some stuff that we can do to help the people who are there. And it is important to network. And, and that's a great opportunity. And if we had it the other way around, 
it wouldn't work. It just wouldn't work. Because, you know, you, you, you do have to be authentic. And it's what I genuinely believe. And, and you know, I'm sure that some people will go, well, it's just, you know, it's Suki trying to, or Peter or Oyster Catchers trying to sell stuff. And, and we do have to make it make money. Mm. But I genuinely believe that's its purpose. The really interesting thing I, I took from that is the, you thought about what your clients want and what the industry needs and actually how to your to your nickname that you started with, you know, how you can match make that connection. And that's what your value add is in the middle. It's not you drawing clients to a, an Oyster Catchers event. It's you putting these people together in the industry and just you're the conduit. I, I want to touch on the point you actually highlighted there around the the fact it is both for industry knowledge and for, for progressing causes. I think diversity is a very interesting one. I know it's something you're very passionate about. You mentioned the industry hasn't necessarily done enough. What, what do you see as the, the key challenges around diversity? What, what is holding either the marketing or consulting industry back in your perspective? I think most of us, men and women, felt five or six years ago when this became much more in front of agenda that by now we would have got much better diversity. I think we just thought it would happen. And and I think, you know, I think there's a number of issues around diversity as well now, but I think we're just all a bit surprised that it just hasn't. So when you look at the stats and you look at the gender pay gap mm. and you look at how many women leaders there are you know, across consultancy, across the different industries, even in marketing, it's just not good enough. I think that most people get that having an inclusive and a diverse scenario at senior level and throughout organisations is a good thing. I don't think there's many people now left saying, no, I don't think it's a good thing at all. I think the challenge is how you get there. Mm. And it's very easy to say, oh, look, we need to, well, I think the latest I was hearing yesterday, it's going to take 500 years before we are properly equal. And it does have to start absolutely from school, doesn't it? Of course, mm. it's got to, you know, there's so many fundamental bits around proper equality that means that we've got to look at it from all aspects. And I think, I think alongside that, this whole area around empowerment, you know, some of the issues that very overtly industries like the film industry are going through, mm. the politicians have been going through and calling out sexual harassment cases mm. and, and, and all of that has just intensified the debate. But I think the bit that sits at the bottom of it is how do we find an inclusive and diverse environment for all of us to work in? And the difficulty is just how do you accelerate it? And, mm. uh, you know, and for me, if we don't talk about it, it isn't going to get better. Yeah. And I think like a lot of women, I sort of thought, I sat on the sidelines and thought it's going to get better, so it's okay. And I, I don't need to shout about it because I don't really like doing that. I want to just get on with my job. But it hasn't changed enough. So mm. I think, and there are some number of things that we can do. So I think, you know, actually, one of the things about Centaur is we do have a 60-40 split of uh, women to men, which is great. At, on the Exco, there are six of us and four of us are women and two are men. And I think that we're very proud of that. But actually, I think there's some things that we can do to be seen in the industry to talk about some of those issues and not and not just the women talking about it. And as I said, I talked about Richard earlier on, he's very good at talking about it as well, as are a number of the men through the business and a, and a number of the women. But and I, and I don't think it is about having rules that are only for women, but things like mentoring mm. is important. 
You know, we, we had a breakfast here for Women's Day, which a few men, but a lot of women came along too. And the feedback was, actually, thank you very much for talking about that. Thank you for bringing somebody like Catherine Jacobs, who's the CEO of Pearl and Dean, came along and talked about, she's, she's written a book around diversity. And Alexandra Haggard, who's the managing director of BlackRock, came as well mm. and talked about, alongside Linda, who's one of my Exeo members, talked about some of their experiences. And it's easy to think, well, I don't want to talk about it because it's a bit silly. But actually, it does help. Mm. It, 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 it is important. I'm a great one for, of course, I don't think that you should overtly promote women because you need to get to equality and you, you, know, you need to get to everyone being equal. But I do think we should work harder at getting lists that are diverse mm. and looking very carefully at how you get to those lists. Um, so it's very easy to keep picking from the same pool of people and then saying, oh, do you know what? There's not enough women. So, for example, and, and I'd put that right through, again, to something like the Oyster Catchers Club or, or other events that I talk at. It's, very, it's, it's much easier to find a man to come and sit on a panel than it is to find a woman. Mm-hmm. It's much easier to get women to not come along to events than it is to men. And, you know, and, I, and I'm sure there's loads and loads of different reasons. And people, you know, you can, you can kind of do some stereotypes around it. But actually, I have to work harder to make sure that I have as many women over the year on the panels as I do as men. Mm. It's just one of those things. There's, few, there's fewer to choose from. You have to work harder to get them to say yes. But that's, it's not okay to say that it doesn't matter. Yeah. So actually, you put that effort into... To like you say, balance that out. I mean, it's funny you say that. I, it's been more of a challenge for me to find female guests for my podcast than it has to find male guests. And the work taken to get female guests has been, like you say, considerably, considerably more. Um, but I'm equally keen to to give that balance because people have different perspectives. I think gender is one of them along with others such as race, upbringing. Um, and, and you know what? A few years ago, if you'd asked me to do this, I would have gone, you know what? I've got a million other things I need to do. I don't need to come sit and talk to you mm. about myself for a few hours. One, it's overindulgent, and I'm not sure I've got anything to say. And what happens if I haven't had time to prepare properly? And maybe people won't think I'm good enough. All of those things. Whereas actually, and again, this is stereotypical, and I'm not sure this is right, but most men would go, oh, yeah, I'll be fine. I'm pretty amazing, so I'll just say what comes to mind. And if I don't know the answer to a few of the questions, it won't really matter. Mm. You know, and that is what we do. You know, we had an XCO the other day where, and throughout the leadership of the business, and we all stood up and did our presentations. And to AT, every man that stood up at the beginning of their session stood up and said, I am whoever I am. Let me tell you how amazing I am. This is, the, this is my past experience. This is my current experience. And therefore, I'm going to be able to lead this part of the business and be amazing. And Every woman stood up and said, let me show you my strategy. Let me show you the structure I've got. This is why I think we're going to get the result. I mean, it's absolutely hilarious. And and it wasn't until we got to the end and Andrea commented and we we noticed it and just went, I can't believe we've done that. And then last week, I was asked to very quickly speak at a a conference. And it was me and then followed by Mickey, who's one of our amazing trainers. And I stood up and did all my bit. It was actually talking about our new pitch process. You know, kind of, hello, I'm Suki Thompson bit. And then Mickey, following me straight after, did a whole three slides on himself and everything he'd done <laughs> and everything that they were part of it. And I thought, Do you know what? And it was really interesting. It didn't make me go, oh, Mickey, you think you're really full of yourself. It was properly interesting. And I just, just didn't cross my mind. And actually, last night at the Oyster Catchers Club, I'd angst about this so much, about talking to them about what does Oyster Catchers do mm. and what does Centaur do? 
because of that point that you said earlier on, I'm so obsessed about not wanting to overly seem to be selling the business. And afterwards, and, and, and I did it because loads of people afterwards go, can you exactly tell me what your company does? It doesn't run events, does it really? What is it? And uh, I always have a dinner afterwards for, mm. for a number of clients. And two of them came up to me afterwards and they said, Do you know what? One of them talked to me about Mark Ritson's mini MBA. She said, I had no idea that's what you were doing. Thank you for telling me about that. It's really important to my business. I wanted to, I wanted to talk to somebody about it, but I didn't know who. I didn't even know it was your business that did it. And there was a couple of other things. You think, you know, I've just got to get over the fact that sometimes people are genuinely interested mm. in what you say and it's not overt selling or it's not kind of just bigging yourself up for the, for the sake of it. It just still finds hard. <laughs> what advice? So that's really, I think we've talked about the sort of what corporates and businesses can do around that selection piece. What advice do you find yourself giving to women more junior than you in the industry or anyone who maybe you mentor to help them overcome some of those challenges? I think there's lots of things that as women, we naturally don't do as well. So we talked about before, we don't ever think we're quite ready. We don't ever think we're good enough. We worry about the things that we are not so good at rather than things we are. So, And it absolutely happens from school. And I've mm. seen it with Jazz and Sam. So, you know, Jazz will go into an exam. She'll come out of the exam. She'll go, oh, my God, you know, Mum, there were those two points. I absolutely didn't know the answer. Oh, it was a disaster. I, you know, I'm not going to be good enough. I'm never going to get a great grade. Sam will come out and go, I was brilliant. <laughs> I said, well, what about that? He said, oh, no, I didn't know the answer to that. I said, what about that? Oh, no, I didn't know the answer to that either. Oh, well, I'm sure it'll be fine. And that is exactly how they behave. And I see it across all their friends. And, I, you know, and I see it every day. Mm. And I think, and actually, do you know what? It makes no difference in the end. Because they do what they do. And sometimes they do well and sometimes they don't because we're all the same. It is a mental attitude. So I think absolutely understand that mental attitude. We are also very bad at talking about money and really understanding our own worth. And that is partly why we have a gender pay gap, you know, and I think it works both sides. You know, we, we've got to, it's beholden on us as leaders to make sure that we don't discriminate. And it is beholden on us as women to make sure that we get an equal status. So I think that's important. So there's some things like that. I think it's important to equally say to women, you know, I, I had it last week at the, at the, at the um, Women's Day thing we were doing where somebody said to me, you've all talked about your life and it seems like it's really hard. And, you know, you're trying to juggle everything. Do you ever get any time to, to just have a laugh? And actually, you do have to make some choices. If you want to be the leader in a business, you are going to have to work really hard. If you mm. want to be an entrepreneur, you are going to have to work seven days a week. So there is a little bit you go, you can't have everything. And you do have to make some choices. But equally, you know, if you don't want to do that, it's fine. Don't do it. You know, you just, if you don't want to be the chief exec of M&S... You don't have to work that hard and you don't have to give up those things. Mm. So kind of work it out. Um, and I do think mentors are brilliant, I think. And I, and I really like reverse mentoring. So um, Mark, the Marketing Academy is something in our industry that run a, a big whole mentoring program. So I mentor usually. I like to mentor entrepreneurs and I quite like to mentor women. So of my four mentees are usually disproportionate number of both of those mm. we have a mentoring program that we've um, introduced through the development board at, at centaur so development board are some young people men and women across the business who uh, help kind of like run a mini board mm. to think about some things that we can that we can do for 
for Centre also uh, around charity, around social things, around learning, around thinking differently. And they run in loads of initiatives and they all have a mentor within the organisation as well. What's the one question that you get asked most by your mentees? How can I be fearless? And they wrap that up in lots of different ways. Mm. But how can I get to where I want to be? How can I stop doing something? How can I start doing something? How do I know when I'm good enough? All those things. How can you overcome that? How can you overcome that? And I think, you know, and I think I have sort of randomly said be fearless a a lot. I Mm. do talk about it. and And I do think... I think it's important to just do stuff. Mm. I think it's important to practice making decisions so that when really big decisions come along, you can overcome your fear. I personally think some of the last 18 months have been a real challenge for me personally. Mm. And I haven't always lived up to my be fearless moment in time. And there's definitely been times over, over the last, you know, the whole of my career as being a business person and being at home and being a friend and a mum when I haven't been as fearless as I would like to. But, you know, I think it, I think it all kind of boils down to that at the end. And that's what most people want to know. Uh, you know, oh, obviously, they also say, how do I be an entrepreneur? Or how do I leave my job? Mm-hmm. When, when do I know it's the right thing to do? Or I've got a great idea, but I'm just not brave enough mm. to start it. And it, it all comes back to what you said, doesn't it? It's that being that be fearless and whether it's start a business or all of the elements you've said it's overcoming that there's a great book gosh feel the fear and do it anyway but I can't remember the author's name I don't know if you know you know the book yourself no I'll um I'll send you a link to it and put it in the show notes because it's exactly that it's accept that fear is normal and do whatever it is anyway start a business ask for a pay rise etc you mentioned that women on the whole 10, maybe not to promote themselves as well. They don't have the three slides like your colleague did. One thing that I am very aware of, though, and you've highlighted throughout this, you've got a fantastic network. And I think you've built a a really good brand and reputation for yourself in the industry. I'd be fascinated for for both myself and my listeners, really how how you went about doing that for people who are consultants themselves looking to build that reputation what steps did you take or were there any key moments of truth that you remember that really led you down that path to build the reputation you now have you know I I am so often asked about this and do you know what I think it is I am naturally curious I love business I am fascinated by the way business works I also love our industry and I really like people my dad is a very outgoing person you know even now you know in his in his late 70s he can always talk to everyone he's very charming he kind of just likes getting to know people and I think I grew up in Cornwall with my mum actually and um one of the things that she always did was have a very open house always people coming and going there's always people around and I think as I grew up kind of on the beach surfing it never crossed my mind that you shouldn't just go and talk to people whoever they are it sort of doesn't really matter so I've never grown up with that idea that there are some people you should talk to in one way and there's other people you should talk to in another way. So that's helpful. Mm. I, I don't really appreciate it. So, um, you know, if there's someone to talk to, then I'll talk to them. And if they're interesting or they think I'm interesting, then that's kind of lucky, isn't it? So I, th- I think that that was definitely the start. And I did go to drama school. So I've spent lots of time understanding and meeting people and doing all that kind of stuff. 
definitely as a new, so from a business perspective, as a new business director in an agency, and that was, you know, what I was when I was relatively young, I did at that stage have to learn as a business, you know, to go and meet people. You have to go and meet people, you have to get their business cards, you have to follow them up, you have to go and talk to them, you have to be relevant and you have to be interested and interesting. So I forced myself to do that. And in those days, you know, I would literally go to a dinner and I would walk through the room until I'd got 20 business cards from people. And then I would follow them up the next day and then I would follow them up for months and months and months and months until I worked with them. And I think that's what you have to do if that's your job. You know, that is your job. That was what I had to do. When I started, certainly Haystack, now I remember I got my first brief from a client uh, she was a lady called Claire Salmon. She was the CMO of the AA. She was going to give me a brief to find an agency. And I, I didn't really know any advertising agencies. And so I literally, I phoned up a couple of friends. Uh, Gay Haynes was one of them. She was one of my mentors for forever and a day. Amazing woman in our industry. And I said, Gay, look, I'm really stuck. I don't know anyone and I've got this big brief and I don't know what to do. And I know all the below the line agencies because I used to work with them, but nobody in an ad agency will talk to me. And she said, don't worry, go and talk to Johnny Hornby and Gary Lace and Nick Hurrell and they'll look after you. And, and they did. And I, and I then, I said, well, look, you're three people. I need a few more. So they then introduced me to some more people. And then because they'd helped me, I wanted to help them. And actually, it always kind of makes me laugh that people always say you're very good at networking and you know lots of people. I do, and I am lucky to do that because of the job that I've had. I'm actually, I'm really hopeless in parties. I don't like parties. If I, if I have to do anything, so for my, that's a few years ago, when I sold my business, what I did was I took my 10 closest friends away and we all went to Marrakesh. And everyone said, well, I, you know, I would have thought you'd have a big party. I don't really like that. I love doing our club event because it's loads of people, but it's, it's ours and it's our business. And I can have a business conversation and I can talk about loads of other things. But I, I don't know, I, I love a dinner party. I love to get to know people properly. I'm actually not very good at small talk, but I am really interested in the way people work. So I, I think there's that. And then I think then genuinely, as you become more of a leader, I guess, it is important to think about the things you are really passionate about. And so I have purposely thought about if I'm going to spend my time doing some things, what am I interested in? I am interested in equality. I am interested in helping other people that have had cancer because it's important to me. And the only other one is, um, is particularly around education. You know, I've talked about education in the business. I've also worked with and, and helped and supported a couple of boys in, in Africa, in Kenya. And me and my children have spent time over there. So that's those are the kind of three areas that I know I am really passionate to talk about. And therefore, it sort of fits within within that area. And just naturally through that networking and, like you say, the previous jobs, it's expanded naturally by the sounds of it. The point you make around the difference between a business conversation and the sort of social body is, is quite an interesting one, actually. I had... Because I think there is a perception people have that we always love to polarise things down to a binary state and people are either outgoing or or not outgoing. You're either extrovert or introvert. And I think that point's really interesting around you're to an extent extrovert at business events, but maybe less, you prefer more of an intimate sort of social occasion. You obviously, with your new business director role, were meeting people. Did you have to almost train yourself to be able to do that? Was it just, like you said, the passion for the, the industry that, that carries those conversations or did you teach yourself a structure to be able to network effectively do you know what if you listen most people are interesting yeah 
So you know, my mom is amazing at getting people to tell them all sorts of things. I've never seen anyone like it. She's, she's, quite, she's quite a shy person, actually. Mm. She would never stand up in front of 250 people and do a speech, ever. But she's unbelievably good at just listening and mm. asking a few good questions. I mean, she's fantastic at it. And I think most people will tell you something interesting about themselves if you listen and ask the right questions. Mm. And that's kind of interesting. You know, it's very rare that I sit somewhere and think, God, you're so boring, or you obviously think I'm really boring, that you've got nothing to talk about. Mm. It's finding that thing that you're interested in. And, you know, I think as you get older, don't you? Most people have got something that's fascinating to talk about. And if they're really young, then they've definitely got things that are fascinating to talk about. So yeah. I, I think that that's just a, that's just a nice thing to do. No, good advice. And I think in this day and age where everything's very fast and on phones, actually just listening to people's quite a premium skill and something that not everyone does. We all, we've all been in or seen conversations where someone checks their text messages while, while talking. And exactly like you say, if you're not listening, it's hard to hear. Yeah, I mean, my, my best one, uh, the one that does wind me up, and we didn't actually talk about it when we were talking about equality um, and diversity was, uh, and, and Peter and I laugh about this because this has never happened to him. When I'm at a dinner party and, and meet people for the first time, and, and again, this is very prejudiced, I guess, middle-aged, slightly elderly men will say to me, and, and what do you do? I said, oh, I run my own business. They say, oh, do you work from home? <laughs> no. I have an office in London. And they go, oh, really? What do you do? Oh, it's a, it's a consultancy. Oh, it's a consultancy, is it? I said, yeah. And, you know, this is before I saw the business. Yeah, and I have an office in London and one in Hong Kong and a partnership in New York. Oh, wow, you've got staff. <laughs> yeah. They said, gosh, that's really hard. So how do you manage that? And then I said, oh, no, I've got my, my business partner, Peter, Ka Peter mm. Cowie. And they go, oh, oh, you've got a business partner. Oh, Peter. Oh, that's great. Fine. Gosh, yes. And it's happened so many times, you know, and whenever I recount the story of people laughing at, you know, a, a, a great friend of mine, Phelan, I, I told him this mm. and we went to a dinner. It was a sort of businessy dinner and he lit and he was sitting over the other side of the table and I told him, he said, I don't believe you. And I said, yeah, I promise you. And this guy happened to sit next to me and I kid you not, that was exactly the words that came out of this man's mouth. And you could see everyone just laughing, going, <laughs> oh my God, it's really happened. And it does. And I said to Peter, has this ever happened to you? And he went, no, Suki, of course not. <laughs> and, and that sort of implicit expectation on women, like you say, is, is a real challenge. Um, funnily enough, I was telling some people at lunch, I was coming to speak to you. You were female who led a really big business. Um, and they were recounting stories exactly the same as that. And I think that is, from a certain generation, a real challenge. Right? I'd be interested, do you find you get that from sort of the generation below you know is it that there are people who there was a time when that was what happened but do you find the the reaction you get changes as you go down the age range you know is yeah it definitely you know my, my my daughter at university and her mates are like so cool great you know really I, mean, I, I don't think they think about whether i'm male or female but definitely younger girls mm. are like that's so cool. And, and actually, you know, they're much more interested in going, what, it, what are the possibilities and the opportunities for me? I can choose to be like Suki and maybe build my own business, or I can choose to be like Andrea and run a PLC, or I can choose to not do any of those things. Mm. Or I might even choose to marry somebody and have children and not work. And I think that it's, 
I don't think anything is right or wrong. And I definitely grew up in that that piece um, and that time where I, you know, my mum was amazing and she worked in a school uh, and didn't have a career like mine. And it wasn't expected. You know, I come mm. from a gin-making family, so we were from beef eater gin. When beef eater was sold, there was not a single woman, woman from the family that worked in the business. It was absolutely not allowed. All the men did. My brother, my cousins, my uncles, all the men. So your family there. ran beef eaters? Yeah, too. yeah. So my oh. great-great-grandfather founded beef eater gin. But no women. There's a claim to fame, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of cool, isn't it? Um, but no women worked in the business. That's not what they were able to do. They were they were strong women. They were absolutely the the kind of people that held the families to business mm. to, to, together. But they did not run businesses. And so I was absolutely. I know I'm of the generation. I know lots of my girlfriends are like, well, that's rubbish. We're not having that. We're gonna definitely do what we want to do and we're going to run business and we're going to juggle some stuff and mm. we are going to be the kind of second generation of trailblazers because I didn't do the hard work that definitely the women before me have mm. um, but I have been determined to do that I think Jazz and her friends will, will make choices and, and they're not and it's neither good nor bad mm. but they can see role models to do both and that's much better definitely agree and the June piece I, I promised we'll come on to but look Something you, you've mentioned a few times now, and I've noticed it really only in that you're the first guest to highlight it so much, and I think just in corporate life generally, and that's your girlfriends, the importance you place on them as a group. And you, you've highlighted that, tell me, tell me if I'm wrong, but they're quite a high-flying group themselves. You mentioned some of them are entrepreneurs, running successful businesses in corporate life as well. I'm really interested actually how you cultivated that friendship group and also how you successfully merge or it sounds like you successfully merge both your business life with your personal life because to be perfectly honest I, I know I keep them reasonably separate and I know that there's a whole spectrum but I'd be really interested in how you merge them so successfully by the sounds of it well do you know what so so, so I have a very close like most people do I have mm. a kind of really intimate group of, of quite close girlfriends and then a, and a slightly large group. And actually, uh, so Fiona, a girlfriend of mine, very close, um, is an artist, and but has been a mum for most of the life that we've known each other. And so she's not from, you know, the kind of high mm. corporate life. And Liz does some social media and is now building uh, a kind of whole art and drama and theatre network in Berkhamsted, where I live which is amazing. So, you know, we've all got children that are going to university now. And so some of my, a couple of my girlfriends are now creating the lives, moving on from where they've been because they've been at home being amazing mums. And they haven't had the kind of lifestyle that I've had. And they've been amazingly supportive. And, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty rubbish friend at times because I, you know, I can never go for a coffee during the day. I can rarely go for lunch during the week. But they kind of don't mind that. And they... Mm allow that and they're much more flexible than perhaps I am and then I do have some other girlfriends whom I've talked about that are amazingly high powered and, and much more high powered than me I just think do you know what just put people together and if they get to know each other and like each other then it's kind of nice isn't it you know I have um we always have a big Christmas party about sort of 50 60 people and it's grown and evolved and it's uh, it's called a naughty secret santa party and it works and it's sort of three or four days before christmas and when the kids were young the kids never used to come and then you know i've run this now for a I don't know, 10 15 years i suppose and um i i just invite people who have been clients and friends and they all kind of get together and it's the same format every year we have a quiz and then the boys against girl team and then we have a naughty secret Santa and everyone piles all their presents in. And uh, and now actually my old PA 
set up a catering company after she'd worked with me, so she does the food. And, you know, it's just a kind of mad thing. And then in, in the rest of the year, you know, I kind of get people together. So I had, I don't know, 17 for dinner last year, last week, and and they sort of know each other, and they are very, very different people. Mm. And, at, and, you know, we had, a, we had a new couple last weekend. Nigel is the chairman of Gately, which is the board mm. that I'm now on. And him and his wife, Philippa, came, and they'd never met anyone before. And and you have to sort of choose people because you wouldn't choose somebody who was sort of slightly shy and introverted into a, a group of people who know each other pretty well. Mm. But they were amazing. And, you know, they have a different perspective and they brought different kind of conversation. It was lovely. And, you know, I saw Nigel earlier on in the week and they said that they had a nice time and my friends really loved meeting them. So I, th- I think that's nice. Yeah. And actually just that openness and bringing people together and opening your personal life to your work life and vice versa. It sounds like it's worked really well for you. Yeah, I guess the other thing that would be is, I mean, I've been divorced for a long time. Mm. And I think, therefore, I wonder what my life would have been like if I'd been married. And, my, and you know, I'd been in that. I think, I think that probably provokes a slightly, slightly different relationship, both with your children and with your friends and your mm. family. So for me, uh, my girlfriends have been an amazing part of my journey in my last sort of 10 years, they've been really important to me. And I've had time to spend with them too Mm. because, you know, I haven't just had a partner, that one partner that has been the person in my life. So maybe that's made a difference too. I want to actually turn now, we've we've gone, we've talked a lot about the journey and what's got you to this point. I'm keen to look forwards and find out what's next for for yourself and for oyster catchers. It's a great question. So we have, what we've done with Oyster Catchers, it's easy to talk about Oyster Catchers mm-hmm. to begin with. So um, Oyster Catchers, we have integrated it into Centaur, mm-hmm. which has been challenging. Um, you know, it's hard taking one kind of culture and putting it into a much bigger culture. So we've done that. And, and as part of that, we've taken the training part of Oyster Catchers and we've put it with another brand called eConsultancy. And we ran the two simultaneously for part of last year. And now we've put all our training into eConsultancy. So there's a little bit more of that to do, to have a look at the different services that we've got and look across the brands within Centaur and make sure that the fit is right. So I think I think we'll see a bit more of movement there. I've got a role across Centaur, so I now work, you know, we talk about advise, inform and connect. I work across all the brands that advise, inform and connect to clients. Mm. And one of the things we're trying to do is to how do we be very client focused and enable those brands to work together with kind of one effective PNL and one way of working with those clients to, to really bring that to market and, and help those brands transform uh, or those agencies transform with you know everything from the consultancy that we might be able to help them on their models through to the training that we can give them through going to events maybe like the Oyster Catch the Club or the Festival of Marketing, which is thousands of marketeers in, in, in mm. October time through to our amazing brands so like you know marketing week or the, the platform of e-consultancy or or in the lawyer which is our because we have we have three sec we have three vertical sectors as well main ones so we've got mm. marketing we've got legal and we've got financial and we've got a little bit of extra stuff as well but, but those are the kind of three main verticals so that's that's a really big challenge that's really interesting for me and I think you know as well as being very customer focused I am I'm interested in how we help our people go in that journey as well. I talked a bit before mm. about the development boards. I think that's quite an important part of that. So, you know, we're doing some stuff around that. I think that's that's the bit that, that's really interesting for me in that learning. 
I guess my life is quite different because Jasmine's at university and Sam's doing his A-levels. So they are on that next bit of, of yeah. moving on. So I don't quite know. You know, luckily, I go and come back to my girlfriends and, you know, other friends. We've all got kids doing the same sort of thing. So I think mm. we're all kind of grappling with what does that look like? I will definitely run another business myself. You know, I mean, I mm. love it here. and I'm, But I, I like being a chief exec. I like running my own company. Is that you want to start your own company no, again? I definitely <laughs> do not want to start again. Definitely not. But I would like to, you know, I, I'm sure that, you know, when, when we've done the next iteration of what happens here, probably being within an entrepreneurial environment again, leading a business in, in some way, shape or form would appeal to me. You know, I, I would like to do that again. I think I've learned some really good things here. We talked at the beginning, putting tech in the heart of a business. Yes, which we, we never... We, which we never covered. <laughs> we never covered. But, you know, I look at brands like e-consultancy that mm. are brilliant, you know, that have got content at the heart of what they do. They've got tech. It really works really well. What they've done with the lawyer is extraordinary. So it's gone from being, you know, it was a, it was a magazine. And now through that platform, there is content, there is learning, there is training, there is, mm. you know, white papers. It, it's a brilliant way to bring that together. And you, you look at what ITV are trying to do with how they're trying to bring a TV and look at that from a different point of view. Obviously, Google and Facebook have really changed the nature of the whole market. Yeah, mm. I talked a bit about Brain Labs before. Those kind of tech-enabled companies are are changing the future of what we're doing, and I think that the that they are that's a really exciting place to be. So I, I think that that's where I would go to at some stage. I always feel that that will happen and evolve at some time, and I'm not quite sure when. So that's that. That's family. I have a nice man in my life, so that's quite good. Well, that's very good, actually. That, you know, the, the, there's a bit of that where I go, oh, that's quite scary, but, that's, you know, that's nice. And, I, you know, I'm lucky my, my parents are all healthy and mm. I spend, spend time with them. So, I, you know, family and my sister and my brother and I've got stepsisters as well, stepbrother. So, you know, there's, there's quite a lot kind of big family and, and cousins mm. that are, are equally important. And I do look forward to spending some time with my, with my friends. You know, and, and and there's other things that I think, gosh, I've I've done lots of sport in my life. I love sport. I love the theatre. I'd love to do more with that again. I kind of like singing and I've not sung for years. So I, I'd like to do a bit of that. So I think, you know, there's there's always, isn't it? I, I, I think um, in my life sort of goes in years of seven. You know, every seven years I've sort of quite radically changed my life. So I, I'm not, I'm not in, a, I'm not near a seven yet, but. I think you can feel one coming. coming I, I, soon. I think I know. I would say three or four years time, my life will be mm. really very different from where it is now because because of everything changing. It's great. It's great to hear. So, last two questions, uh, and it's been we we have covered a lot. I'm very. We I feel we could talk all day, and I, I know we didn't touch on gin, which I, I didn't <laughs> realise you were from the beef eater family, and I guess now explains why you maybe started your own gin brand as well. We didn't get onto tech enabled businesses, but. I think we've covered so much fantastic I'll stuff. I'll do the gin very quickly. So Please go on. So I, you've, hold, you've tied, I've told you about Beefeater. I came from that background. I, my husband, actually, uh, Alan, was massively keen on golf. And my maiden name was Bunker. So I was Suki Bunker. So I created a gin called Bunker Gin to sell to golf clubs and yeah. golf people. And I did it when we came back from living in Hong Kong. I had Jasmine was one and Sam was about to be born. And, uh, and that's why I created a gin. 
but it was very very early so I was 10 years too early creating a gin so you say now it's uh, but, so it's now everywhere. it's great exactly but you know my uncle when they sold Beef Eater founded Heyman Gin and mm-hmm. Heyman Limited that produces fine alcohol but also has Heyman Gin and, and a number of other spirits and my two cousins Miranda and James also work in the business so there's a kind of real trait of entrepreneurialism in my overall family and they have just so they have this amazing Heyman gin and they've just opened a distillery in Balham. So you can now go and go and have the gin experience at Heyman gin, which is quite fun. So I feel like that's sort of come, come full circle on the whole gin side. Wow. Well, to anyone listening who's in London, they can go and check it out. They can go and check it out. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Thank you for coming. It was something I was curious on. And like you say, gin now, gosh, I remember four, even five years ago, no one really drunk in now. That and craft beer seem to be the yeah, two things. Yeah, it's the to, thing to drink, isn't it? To yeah. get involved in. Yeah. So, so I'm actually going to make it three questions, if that's okay with you. But they're all very quick. Mm-hmm. So the first one, and it's the the third, is simply off what you've just said because I think there's something really interesting in that. The, the first is about books, and we talked right back at the start about a couple of books that really had an impact on your life. I like to read a lot of books around sort of self improvement, around business. What book or books do you find yourself recommending most to friends, colleagues, or your children? I love reading. I absolutely love reading. And actually, one of the things I have done in the last couple of years is I listen to a lot of books. Yeah. Audible? Yeah. Yeah. Big fan. Absolutely love Audible. And also, it means I can, I can at the end of the year, look at how many books I've read or listened to. So that makes me always feel mm. good. Like I've got extra, I'm, I'm doing the thing that I love. A lot of people who come to work for me, I give them the mindfulness book because I think it's a really, it's a lovely book and I think it's, um, and then there's a variety of them. And I go through those iterations. We talked a couple of Mm. books earlier on, so I'm I'm in a bit of stages of giving those out at the moment. I love reading all sorts of different books. Um, I mean, I lived in Asia quite a lot, so I'm always fascinated about that. Uh, I, I quite like history. So there the tends to be the book of the moment that I'm quite interested in. What's that book of the moment um, right now? But do you know what? I've, I've, well, I've just finished all those sort of personal ones. So I haven't read a good fiction book for a few weeks now, but I'm going on holiday next week. So I'm going to get a whole bunch together. And, you know, in a couple of weeks time, I'll be, I'll send you my top tips from the holiday. Please, that'd be great. And I'll share that with my, with my listeners so they can, because it's Cornwall, isn't it? I think we're both, you're going next week. I'm, I'm there the week after. Um, so yes, we'll share that with the listeners. Uh, and then last two questions. And I always ask this question, which is very much for people who are working in a firm. But I also want to ask, as a final question, people who are thinking of going out on their own. So we'll start with the first, which is you have three people in front of you and you can give one piece of advice to each. You have someone who's say, just entering the consulting industry. You have someone who's four to five years in. And then you've got someone who is approaching partner level in a traditional consultancy. I'd be really interested in the one piece of advice you would give to, to each person who are at each of those different stages. I think the overall one I would do is don't leave tomorrow what you could do today in general. I think we're very good at kind of going, when I'm ready, I will do this. Mm. You've probably just got to tip yourself a bit more than that. But I think at the beginning, I think, you know, I think it was what we talked about earlier on. If you, if you want to, at the beginning of your career, try and understand as much as you can about all aspects of the job. 
do the stuff you like, do the stuff you don't like. Um, just learn things and learn what's great and what's not. And I would say that about people, about leadership, about the business itself. I think that bit in the middle is absolutely where being fearless is a good thing to do. Because actually, what's the worst that can happen? It goes wrong. It doesn't really matter. Really doesn't matter. It feels like it does massively at the time, but it doesn't. The thinking about it's always worse. So just do try some stuff because, you know, if you fail, you can sit and have a gin tonic at the end of the day and that doesn't matter. And I think then at partner level, that is about thinking about what makes you the leader that you want to be. And I, and I think, you know, it's something I never really thought about it sort of evolved and there's an amazing man called Ronan Dunn who used to run Telefonica and he would talk about being chief cheerleader um, chief storyteller as a chief exec and thinking about what his purpose was his personal purpose as well as the business purpose and I think it was when I met him that I began to think about that myself um, and I think as a you know at a partner level Absolutely work out what you're brilliant at in your job, but work out what else you want to do with your life, what else you can do to influence other people's lives, to influence the life around your business. Because I think that's the bit that that genuinely, for me, has has given me a lot of joy. And the final one, and it, it was triggered from what you were saying about bunker gin, but I think that looking through everything we've discussed, the the thing that I've taken away is that you've started these businesses because you wanted to, almost in spite of personal circumstances. So I I very often hear people who say they, they can't start a business, can't move career, can't whatever it may be, because of X. And you know, as you've highlighted, you started Bunker Gin with a with a one-year-old and a second child on the way. You were running Oyster Catcher when you had obviously your challenge with the cancer, which was a really hard time for you. And you're a year in, so you, you pretty much only just started. To anyone who's listen to this and is actually thinking, I've got that idea, I want to go and start that business or I want to make that career change. What would you say to them? Well, I would just do it. Because even if you fail, you will have learned something. And I think it must be a bit like writing a book. You know, everyone says, oh, you've got a book inside you. I don't have a book inside me. <laughs> I don't. I don't like, you know, I, I like actually writing articles and stuff. I don't never want to write a book. But if there is things that you want to do, you'll always sit there going, I wonder if I could. And if you genuinely want to start a business, because I know loads of people actually don't want to. You know, they say oh, it would be so nice. It wouldn't be nice. They don't really want to do it. You know, it's like people go, oh, I'd love to be the chief exec of a FTSE company. No, they don't. They don't want to make that sacrifice. But if you genuinely think that you want to do something, do it, because it really, because what is the worst that can happen? I mean, you know, look, you might lose your house. You might. But most people don't get to that place. But I think equally, plan. You know, don't just crazy. I mean, it does sound a little bit like, oh, I just did it because it was a laugh. But don't just crazily go and do stuff for the sake of it. I think, you know, there are moments in your life when you can walk away and just go run. I'm just going to try it. But I think also work out the way to make it happen. Work out a way that's going to make it work. But at, at, at some moment in your life, you do have to make the leap. And the problem is the moment you leap, it could go wrong. And, you know, you have to be fearless and... and there is no, you, you, can, you can be really safe for the whole of your life or not. Mm. But the upside of it working is amazing. There's always downsides. But, you know, if you don't try, you never know. And I think that's a fantastic place to finish. And 
be fearless, I feel, is the the key piece of advice from across our, our chat today. So I just wanted to say thank you very much. I, I've really enjoyed catching up. Um, it was great to get your thoughts on all of the topics we've discussed. Um, and yes, thank you for, for being a part of the show. Thank you very much. It's been great fun. Fantastic. Well, all the best and have a great week. Enjoy your holiday. Thank you. I will. I'll see you again soon. Yeah, thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb In Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.